Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday the 22nd of August. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. We're also on Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. You'll also find the programme on Substack, Facebook, Instagram and Threads. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's central bank announced a reduction to its one-year loan prime rate and left the five-year rate unchanged, disappointing a majority of economists who had expected a cut to both rates. The People's Bank of China cut its one-year loan prime rate, which affects borrowing costs for households and businesses, by 10 basis points to a record low of 3.45%, while surprising markets by holding steady the five-year rate, which is a reference rate for mortgages, at 4.2%. Economists had expected a 15 basis point cut to both rates. China will push the BRICS block of emerging markets to become a full-scale rival to the G7 this week as leaders from across the developing world gather to debate the forum's biggest expansion in more than a decade. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has invited more than 60 heads of state and governments to a summit in Johannesburg from tomorrow when several countries could be invited to join the BRICS block of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. China is reportedly pushing for an expanded membership that could include Argentina, Iran, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia and about 20 other governments that have formally applied. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell will deliver an address at the Central Bank's Symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming on Friday. The theme of this year's Central Bankers' Summit, which runs from Thursday to Saturday, will be structural shifts in the global economy. In the past, Fed chairs have used the event to outline their policy agendas. And ahead of the gathering, Harvard economics professor Jason Furman and Nobel laureate Paul Krugman called for the Fed to raise its inflation targets from the current 2% to a range of 2% to 3%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Jeff Howie, market strategist at the Singapore Exchange, and over in Washington, D.C., our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rallied off their lows in Monday's afternoon session despite pressure from higher yields on longer-term treasuries. The S&P 500, which was down as much as 1% at the low of the day, closed 0.7% higher at 4,400. The Dow fell 37 points, or 0.1%, to end at 34,464. The Nasdaq snapped a four-day losing streak, gaining 1.6% in its biggest one-day advance since July the 28th. Tech shares gained Monday, with the S&P 500 tech sector adding 2.3%. NVIDIA rallied 8.5% ahead of its much-anticipated earnings release on Wednesday. And Tesla advanced 7.3% after plunging 11% last week following news of more price cuts in China. 
Yields on 10-year treasuries on Monday hit their highest since November 2007, ahead of a much-anticipated speech on Friday by Fed Chair Jerome Powell. 10-year bond prices slipped, lifting the yield to 4.35%, up 10 basis points on the day, while 30-year bond yields reached a new 12-year high of 4.45%. Two-year yields hit 5% and real rates on 10-year inflation-protected bonds hit 2% for the first time since March 2009. In the currency markets, the offshore yuan weakened to as much as 7.3362 per dollar, its lowest level in over nine months after the People's Bank of China lowered its one-year loan prime rates by 10 basis points. However, the currency rebounded to 7.2881 after China's major state-owned banks were seen snapping up offshore yuan on Monday, creating a liquidity squeeze. Onshore yuan was flat, trading at 7.2865 renminbi in Shanghai. And Hong Kong stocks fell to their lowest level since November after the PBOC disappointed investors and left its five-year LPR unchanged. The Hang Seng Index slipped 328 points, or 1.8%, to a nine-month low of 17,623, adding to last week's 5.9% tumble. The index is down more than 22% now from its January the 27th high, putting it in a technical bear market. The tech index dropped another 2.1% after losing over 6% last week, and the moves follow the release of disappointing series of earnings across the tech sector. The China Enterprises Index of the largest offshore listings in Hong Kong sank 1.9% and it's plunged 12.6% this month so far to become the worst performer among 92 global equity gauges. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 1.2% to 3,093. That's its lowest level in seven months. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter. You'll find that at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We have a very international panel of guests for you this morning. First of all, here in Hong Kong, our regular Tuesday morning commentator, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And down in Singapore, we find market strategist at the Singapore Exchange, Jeff Howie. Morning, Jeff. Nice to talk with you. Good morning, Peter. Very nice to be here. Thank you. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Tuesday morning, our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Uh, Let's start over here. China's central banks announced a reduction to its one-year loan prime rate and left the five-year rate unchanged. Rather surprised, a majority of economists who had expected a cut to both rates. The PBOC cut the one-year LPR, which affects borrowing costs for households and businesses, by 10 basis points to a record low of 3.4%. But it surprised markets by holding the five-year rate, which is a reference rate for mortgages, at 4.2%. Economists had expected a 15 basis point cut to both rates. And Monday's decision followed an unexpected reduction in both short-term loan rates and the medium-term policy rate by the PBOC last week. China had been expected to make the biggest cuts this year to both of its core lending rates as pressure mounts on policymakers to counter a host of economic challenges. Um, Stuart, let, let me ask you to kick off on this. Um, the PBOC has been talking repeatedly about releasing more liquidity for the economy. It wants to make adjustments for home mortgages to make them uh, more affordable. It's been urging banks to increase lending. And yet it goes and leaves its main policy rate linked to mortgages unchanged. It's sort of sending out a bit of a confusing signal, isn't it? 
Uh, yeah, I agree. It is a confusing signal. And um, I've tried to rationalize this in, in, in the view um, that I think the PBOC is basically very inexperienced in this sort of situation that they're finding at the moment. They've not had uh, a situation before, in the, certainly not in the last 20 years or so, of uh, falling GDP, uh, high, rising unemployment, um, and, and massive uh, debt out in the market. And uh, and I think at the same time as they're not cutting interest rates, anything like as fast as probably people are expecting, they're also um, concerned that they would be cutting interest rates at a time when interest rates are much higher elsewhere, and therefore they, their currency becomes even less attractive to international investors. Um, there may be some degree of wanting to sort of um, try out one cut and then see if that works and then try another cut. That's what they did last time. But it, it's not enough. And I think this is beginning to show the degree of inexperience of the PBOC in managing the Chinese economy. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the property sector in a short while. But but this is not helping any aspect of the economy when when it seems like the PBOC is just dithering. Mm, dithering. Je Jeff, I mean, this is obviously an important issue for Singapore as well, isn't it? And Southeast Asian economies, what's happening um, in, in China? Do you think the PBOC is a bit lost or the government is a bit lost here? Because it seems slightly odd. It surprised a lot of people. Anyway, it's in action yesterday. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I, I think the, there has been a little bit of an element of consistency, though, when it comes to not wanting to uh, move against what their initial, uh, I guess, economic focus was uh, over a few years ago. So we know that the property sector, uh, it's going obviously through the rut with the supply glut and it obviously has so much of the uh, the, the debt that, that, that has been, uh, you know, obviously in focus, particularly country garden over the weekend and what i think is really interesting is that it at the same time it, it's kind of looking to shore up stability and keep an orderly focus on markets so that capital markets can deal with this orderly i guess wind down in the debt or, or sticking to that axiom that they always had in terms of not wanting to so-called bail out a property market but you, you look at the the measures that came in on Friday. The are about you know basically trying to keep facilitate and transparent you know very efficient operating of markets and so forth. And the fact that the like you said the five year loan prime rate, which is more for home buyers and companies, um, wasn't cut as much. Uh, it now goes back to maybe there's something more in the reserve requirement ratio coming for the second half. I think most analysts expect at least 125 bips cut there. Um, but but I, I think liquidity is obviously super important. Um, but I think they're just obviously sticking to their guns a little bit and making sure that they don't overdo it on too much support for the property market. That's, mm. yeah, it might be a little different to what people think, but that, 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 could, that could be an angle. 
Mm, okay, interesting. I mean, Barry, this is of concern to the US as well, isn't it? Janet Yellen has said already she's concerned about what's happening to the, the Chinese economy. I mean, in effect, we've had a 40-year boom in, uh, in China since it really first started to open up. It's seen enormous economic growth, delivered a lot of jobs for people. Some people are worried now that, you know, that boom has, has basically run its course. And now what we're going to see is difficult times for, uh, for China along the lines of what we saw in Japan at the beginning of the 1990s. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And uh, I must say, having been away for a week in Britain, and you come back and the uh, preponderance of news about China is just deep pessimism. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a sense that, as you say, the boom is over and that they uh, will not grow. And so, yes, they have the achievement of seven, eight hundred million people being pulled out of poverty. But now you've got a the exchange rate that is under deep pressure and they're cutting rates and headed into deflation or already in deflation when the rest of the world is raising rates to fight inflation. So it's a, it's a peculiar thing. And I think one of the, uh, the news bits that I focused on in, in just catching up was that $7 billion had pulled out of China in just the past month in mm. terms of equity flows out of uh, the exchanges. This is pretty worrying. So you can't find anybody in Washington, or at least that I'm reading, who's optimistic about China short term. And people think, in fact, it's going to get much worse. This is often a good buying opportunity, isn't it, when people are most fearful, as Warren Buffett always says, you know, buy when people are afraid, sell when they're being greedy. Uh, it's, it's, well, it's, 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 well, that may be right, but I, I doubt it for the moment. I think, I think we've got a lot further to go down frankly, and I think uh, we need to uh, use the Rothschild um, analogy and only buy when the blood is on the streets. Mm. But this doesn't help much the property sector, does it? I mean, people are looking for some real, um, some, some real support for, for the property sector, which is hemorrhaging um, money. More and more property developers seem to be tumbling um, into, into the precipice. What needs to be done there? Because this is the biggest issue, I think, isn't it, that's facing the economy at the moment and that most worries foreign, foreign investors. Yeah, and the, the extent of the debt of the property sector is simply enormous. It's bigger than the GDP of some some countries, and that's just the property sector. And the, the property sector has represented something like 23 to 25% of the entire Chinese economy, which is far too high, and, um, and, and in any event will, at the end of this, come down. The problem with the property sector is there is far too many... Uh, there are far too many properties that are uncompleted, empty, um, not being sold. And the market, the, the buying market, believes that prices will come down. So why buy now if they'll be cheaper mm. later? So, um, the, the, And then when you look at the size of the debt of just two companies, and, that's just, and they're quite representative of many others, um, you're talking about $150 billion of debt. Well, th where is that going to come from to save, to, to save them? There's only the government out there capable of doing that. It doesn't, and it doesn't look as though it wants to. Mm. So I think the property sector has still got quite a long way to, to fall. I don't think, the, the, I don't think we've fully um, 
taking it on board, even though uh, some of the debt is defaulting and uh, and the prices of companies are, are, are declining quite sharply. We have to expect to see some serious bankruptcies coming about in that property sector in the near future. And that will then be the start of the end of the crisis. It won't be the end of the crisis, but it'll be the start of the end of the crisis. Bankruptcy is, is, is an important um, financial tool, frankly, and China is, China is not used to that, but it will have to accept mm. that this is the way forward. Okay. I mean, Jeff, from a market perspective, there, there's two big things going on at the moment that seem to be risk-off for markets. One is this rise in US Treasury bond yields, which I want to talk about in the moment. But the second one is what's going on in China. It seems to be uh, infecting global markets, doesn't it? And sort of some people are seeing this as potentially a big um, credit event uh, for, for markets. How are you seeing it down there from a market perspective? Oh, it's certainly impacted Peter and markets, you know, a little bit back to uh, where we were in 2021, I guess, over the last five, six weeks in terms of the market moves were just so fast. Uh, STI, um, you had from from mid July to the to uh, the end of July, the STI added something like five percent, and that was on the back of China also adding six percent. It was a little bit like buy the rumor for the stimulus, but sell the fact because the next two weeks uh, that have t- two to three weeks that we've seen in August, you've had the uh, FTSE China A50 index decline five percent, and that's impacted our market as well. Here we've declined uh, a good a good five percent, and. And it's not just from a market moving point of view as well. Our uh, trade numbers, uh, as, as we've seen in Taiwan and South Korea, have been in contraction since October. Industrial production as well has been in contraction here since October. And much of this anchors to, of course, uh, the outlook for electronics and technology as well as the regional consumer. So uh, it's yeah, we're still we're still looking for signs of stabilization, stabilization, Peter, and and that's yet to happen. But in the meantime, uh, it it is certainly creating something of a roller coaster in the market. I've never seen a symmetrical move up so quickly and down so quickly at the same momentum uh, as we've seen in both our FTSE China A50 index and the Straits Times index. Mm, okay, interesting. And Barry, I want to ask you about BRICS. The Financial Times is reporting on Monday that China wants to push the BRICS block countries of emerging markets to become a full-scale rival uh, to, to the G7. And South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has got more than 60 heads of state and government going to Johannesburg for the BRICS summit. China wants to expand the membership to include Argentina, Iran, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, and a host of, um, of others, although India disagrees um, with whether the BRICS should be a, a, a sort of a more political force. What do you make of this? I mean, this sounds like a, a sort of politicisation of, of the BRICS altogether, doesn't it? I mean, originally it was just a name, just a term for a group of emerging market economies. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fascinating development. And I think it's very hard to predict what is going to happen. But you've laid out, I think, the, uh, the questions before this Johannesburg summit. I, my own view is, good luck. I don't think it's ever going to happen. You mm-hmm. can't get Jim O'Neill, the financial man in, in, in London. He invented the term, of course. And he had to do, it was about these countries becoming investment targets. And the, the two winners were clearly India and China. 
Russia and Brazil have not done well, and he has said so explicitly. But then you hear all this sudden talk, South Africa having been added to the group uh, sometime later, that they're going to set up their own currency. And he said, are they going to have their own central bank? Of course, they're not. (laughs) Hmm. And I think this notion of bringing in new countries is very risky. You know, not very many people will remember that back in the 1960s, you had the group of 77, which was just a a lobbying group, a, a caucus of poor developing countries. Well, the risk for the BRICS is that if they expand their membership, they could become just like that. Now, at the same time, there are some positive developments that the BRICS could deal with, and that is you've got Saudi money. The Saudis want in, and the Saudis can make the BRICS bank work, because so far it's been a very small bank. You also have the development that the Americans and Europeans, having frozen Russian assets, have really forced Russia and China together. And that alliance has made, well, first of all, oil prices for both China and India have been very low and they bought all they could because they haven't been, you know, abiding by the sanctions that have been set. I think the risk is that, as Jim O'Neill again says, you, there's never been a case that India and China agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And if India, current chairman of the group of 20, says we don't want to expand and we don't want to be an advocate of developing countries only, then you've got China who's pressing for expansion, who wants to promote the renminbi as a global rival to the dollar, and you've got the Brazilians somewhere in the middle, and the South Africans, frankly, don't count. The danger of the BRICS is that they could become, absent China and India, an association of failed states. I mean, after all, Iran wants to come in, Cuba wants to come in, Argentina has the highest inflation in the world, Zimbabwe, you know, so it's it's a... It's a huge problem. I think it's going to be fascinating, Peter, to see what actually happens with all these countries meeting in Johannesburg, what kind of agreement they can agree to make in a formal statement. Not, uh, I, I don't disagree with you at all there, Barry. I just think that anybody who thought that uh, they might want to join a, an economic community, which includes um, Vladimir Putin and Russia, I, I just don't see that happening. Um, you know, Russia is the pariah state in the world, and it, it, it would be sufficient to put off almost any anybody other than uh, another rogue state to join. Mm. I mean, uh, I presume one, there is one positive from this, which is that together, um, maybe these nations could push for better debt reduction terms, more debt reduction in some of the poorest nations in the world, because the, the BRICS countries do represent, don't they, some of those, uh, some of those nations that are struggling uh, with, with a lot of debts. Do you think that could be a positive from it, from them working more closely together? Not really. I think that um, they've got plenty of other uh, objectives, I don't think. And, they, and, and each of them have got their own problems. So Unless they're sharing their problems elsewhere, I doubt that that will happen. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a potential positive, Peter, because this, after all, is the 15th summit they've had. So these countries and their ministers know each other. And uh, there is the BRICS Development Bank. That's an achievement. There is a mechanism for bailing each other out if somebody gets into financial distress. That's a positive. I think they would like to have some rivalry 
to the dollar using their own local currencies. That's a positive. But to say they could rival the G7 as a steering committee for the global economy is frankly absurd because they don't agree on the, on, on the matters themselves. So I think it has potential, but it's uh, at risk. I think the greater risk is abject failure. Mm. Jeff, from, from Singapore, I mean, obviously, one of the countries in Southeast Asia that wants to join BRICS is Indonesia, which is, well, it's the, probably the fastest growing economy in the region at the moment, isn't it? So are there benefits? Yeah, I mean, for, the, I think, I mean, the, the, this really comes back to where we're uh, looking at in the world in terms of all this geoeconomic fragmentation, I think, Peter. I mean, the, it will be fascinating to watch uh, what happens in South Africa, but the, as, as Barry said, that the we, where the future of multilateralism now goes uh, really will depend on, I think, how China and the US both fare in terms of their relationships going into next year, particularly as uh, the tech cycle starts to pick up as expected again, uh, coming out of its contraction of this year. There's yeah, I, I, it's it's for ASEAN. Uh, you know, the the integration has been working particularly well in recent years because of the influx and the the uh, the need for green mining. Basically, all the uh, all the minerals such as cobalt and nickel and lithium uh, and copper that goes into producing rechargeable batteries for the motor cars, the EVs. Much of that green mining upstream activity is in, as you know, Indonesia and Philippines. And then we have a lot of midstream and manufacturing throughout ASEAN. So the amount of money that's coming from the world to invest in, uh, I guess, as an upstream power hub for, for EV activities in ASEAN is really seeing, um, you know, really seeing us progress more in reducing customs and transportation costs that have in the past been, I guess, the biggest barriers for ongoing integration in ASEAN. So if you've got, if you've got a, a good economic thread uh, for, the, for, the, um, for this multilateralism, then you've got, I think you've got a great purpose and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and you can find momentum. But yeah, finding that economic thread is going to be really uh, important. Okay. Well, in the time we've got left, let's turn our attention to the markets. The yields on 10-year treasuries on Monday hit their highest since November 2007, ahead of a speech on Friday, which is much waited for by Fed Chairman Jerome Powell at the annual Jackson Hole Economic Summit. 10-year bond prices slipped, and that's taken the yield now to 4.35%. Jeff, you're our markets man. Um, Are markets ready for you? I mean, this is now, it's very clear, isn't it, that 4%, which pretty well since the global financial crisis has been a ceiling for yields has now become the new floor and we're going to have to get uh, used to rates above four percent two-year rates at five percent real rates uh, at two percent as well this is a new environment isn't it are, are the markets ready yeah it might it, a bit of a structural step up uh markets are watching very closely uh the expectations for where the FOMC will be on the 13th of December, just since those minutes were released last week, have uh, increased. The, the rates for a t- number 25 basis point hike have increased from something like 25% to above 40% now. Mm-hmm. Uh, those minutes, they had those two scenarios. Supply chain improvements or favourable commodity price trends don't continue, or you have aggregate demand failing to slow by an amount 
that um, fails to slow by amount that's sufficient to restore price stability. That could cause more persistent elevated uh, inflation in the U.S. That was the that was the key takeaway from the FOMC minutes that have seen those expectations rise. Added that uh, extra extra step up for the for the yields. Um, because you look at the you look at the actual information that's coming through since those minutes have been there, you've got, you've had uh, more than ninety percent of the U.S. stocks now report their uh, earnings for the second quarter. You had double the amount of stocks that actually beat earnings than those that missed. So just mm-hmm. like the first quarter of this year, those earnings have been better than 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 feared. But also you've got um, on the energy price as well. I think WTI is now at eighty dollars a barrel versus seventy dollars a barrel at the end of June. Brent crude up $10 a barrel as well. So I, I think what it means is obviously key, all eyes will be on the PCE core deflator, uh, which I think is the 31st of August and expecting a little bit of uptick because of energy prices like we've seen in much of the events world. But also, uh, Peter, there, there's, I think, a structural change too in terms of the four new incoming FOMC voters, uh, Tom Barkin, Raphael Bostic, uh, Mary, Daly, Mary Daly and Loretta Mester are all incoming FOMCs and they they were saying at least uh, just uh, as long as four weeks ago that inflation was still too high in the US. So I think um, much of those higher yields is driven on the back of that. Stuart, we're in a, a bit of an odd situation, aren't we? Because the Fed has sort of signalled that it's even if it isn't completely done, it's close to being done. Central banks, certainly around Asia, um, are signalling very strongly that they're, they're going to pause and leave rates on hold. But here we have the situation where, despite that, yields are continuing to rise and, and rise quite uh, quite rapidly. Uh, um, I think there will be another 25 basis point increase in, in Fed rates, uh, whether it's in September, which is the next scheduled meeting, or... Uh, after that, I, I, I'm not entirely clear, but I think the Fed, it, it's right in saying it's nearly done, but it hasn't, it's not done. So at least another 25 basis points would be not unreasonable. Yes, they are concerned about inflation, and rightly so. Inflation is not falling in the US anymore. It's, uh, it's gone up a little bit recently. And uh, I think that there is still concern that... Um, that they need to keep control. Uh, unemployment rates in the U.S. are pretty low, and that is uh, uh, um, helping to keep the economy very strong. So whilst the economy is strong, it makes it makes sense to take advantage of that by putting rates up. Um, I know Barry might not agree with me oh. on that, but... But I think that, um, and he, he's he's the one that has to suffer the higher rates if uh, he's paying for a mortgage. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it's um, I, this is just the way I think it is at the moment. This is this is the trend. Yeah, I think the Powell speech on Friday is important. A year ago, he was talking about fighting inflation, and he's done it. Mm-hmm. And I think they will continue the inflation fight. But, you know, at some point, these higher interest rates, and Peter, you mentioned how rapidly the 10-year and, by implication, the mortgage rate in the United States has risen. I was looking at uh, the average home buyer now at 7% on a 30-year mortgage is paying $400 more per month. That's, uh, that's a big hit. So mm. is the recession threat over in the States? I think it is, but certainly a slowdown is in fact engineered and is going to take effect. 
I think the Powell speech will not be a surprise and probably markets will like it. But there's been an immense positive development in the states in all aspects of the economy over the past 12 months. Mm. And what do you make of um, these two uh, high, high-profile economists, Jason Furman, he's an economics professor at Harvard, Paul Krugman, Nobel-winning, uh, prize-winning uh, Nobel laureates. They're both calling for the Fed now to raise its inflation targets. They're saying that 2%, when it was first set, it was a very arbitrary uh, target. And if you were to start again now, you wouldn't pick 2% as the inflation target. And they're suggesting that the Fed moves gradually to a new range of two to three percent what do you make of that well i'll defer to jeff and to Stuart on this one but it seems to me it's very clear this is the wrong time to send that signal i don't think it makes a great deal of difference if it's two or three percent as an inflation target but certainly not saying it now when you're in the midst of an inflation battle uh, i totally agree with you um, what's the point of moving the goalposts the game is still in being played let the game finish first Jeff, yeah. final word to you. I, I think find it from good, good kind of uh, track of thought, but find another way to not move the goalpost, but find another policy to help rein it in. Presumably, if you change the inflation target to three percent, then anyway, three percent sort of becomes the new floor, and you have to start getting used to inflation at maybe three and a half percent instead. So it, it's sort of, as you say, it's sort of the wrong signal to send out at the moment, isn't it? Yes, it's not the thing, not the sort of thing a central bank would want to do. Yep. It has implication for wages, implication for corporate manage, uh, corporate margins, implication for the Wall Street. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Sounds like we're all agreed. That's good. Good note to finish on. <laughs> Thank you all very much. <laughs> you heard there Jeff Howie, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant based here in Hong Kong, and Barry Wood, our Washington, D.C.-based U.S. economics correspondent. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a great day. Money Talk.